Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, COVID-19 Combat, Ventilator Knockouts to Avoid, features Eric Bauer and Tyler Christofoli and is sponsored by Zoll. Hello and welcome to the latest in EMS World's series of special webinars on topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's presentation is COVID-19 Combat, Ventilator Knockouts to Avoid. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World, and we're very happy to have everybody joining us today. We would like to thank Zoll for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. And at the end of the presentation today, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the remaining time allowed. Today, we are very pleased to welcome our featured speakers. Eric Bauer is founder and chief executive officer for FlightBridge ED. Eric is an internationally recognized best-selling author, speaker, and educator. He has spoken on many critical care topics and has authored and published more than 175 critical care podcasts related to the pre-hospital critical care industry. Joining Eric is Tyler Christofuli. Tyler is a flight medic for LifeLink 3 in St. Paul, Minnesota. He is also co-creator of the Foam Frat blog and podcast. Also, Eric and Tyler are co-authors of the text Ventilator Management, Advanced Concepts in Critical Care. We're very happy to have them joining us today. With that, I'm going to turn it over to our presenters. Eric and Tyler, please take it away. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. We appreciate you having us on. Eric and I are super happy to do this. Uh, we wanted to put together a uh, quick little uh, guide to things not to do, maybe things that we've learned in our, uh, in our experience. And I don't know, Eric, did you ever play Mortal Kombat? I did. I did. You remember that game? Yeah, so there's this, you know, these knockouts and there's these different moves and uh, they call them KOs is what the cool kids call them. That's what you're, you got KO'd, you got knocked out. And so what I thought we could do is uh, we're not going to be able to teach you everything about mechanical ventilation in this quick little uh, webinar series that we're doing. But uh, what we can do is try to give you some advice on things to avoid. And if you are like me, my formal uh, ventilator training was very weak. Uh, we really did not cover much of the stuff at all in paramedic school. And the problem with that is now that we have this, uh, this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we're running into issues to where a lot of the regulations are going out the window and you could very easily be sitting in the driver's seat of a mechanical ventilator and without much knowledge at all. What do you think about that, Eric? I fully agree. I think when you look at the, the amount of patients now being transported uh, in the critical care realm and then how that's segueing into ground EMS, um, I started the same way where I was handed a ventilator with very little education and just kind of 
left to sink and swim. And I think that's where you and I have connected over the years and we're, we're both very curious and self-driven and, and we have wanted to learn this topic uh, to where we can really manage these high acuity patients uh, to the best of our ability. And, and so that is really where a, a lot of our relationship has developed is through that combined love. And, and I am excited to be able to present this with you. Yeah, the ventilator brought us together. And so much so that we, uh, we actually uh, published this book. And I was honored to be able to have my name next to Eric and uh, to put out this ventilator management advanced concepts in critical care. And a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is in this book. I'm not doing a sales pitch here. But uh, if you want to know more, you can definitely find this on the uh, Flight Per Jet website and also on Amazon. A lot of these concepts that we're going to briefly skim over here, uh, you can digest them uh, more fully on either both of our podcasts and this book as well. So I want to start off by saying, and I think this is important, that I have not had to take care of a COVID-19 patient yet. Have you, Eric? Uh, I have not. I, I did innovate a COVID-19 patient the other day. Um, and it was a confirmed uh, positive case. But going into it, I did not know that this patient was COVID positive. Yeah, so I, I just think that's important to get out because uh, I'm not going to sit here and claim to say, oh, you know, this is what I've been seeing. You know, I'm up here in, in uh, Wisconsin, right on the border of Minnesota, and uh, we're preparing for it. And that's really the important phase of this is uh, the preparation because after you've done it, uh, you already could have made those mistakes. So I have been surrounding myself with the literature. I mean, I got literature everywhere. My printer's been going crazy, and I've been trying to learn what to expect with uh, lung compliance, uh, hypoxemia. Is it a hemoglobin issue? Is there some sort of porphyrin disassociation from iron? And so that preparation phase is so important. But I don't want to say that, you know, I got all this experience. You know, I'm not up in New York where they're on these uh, – front lines and they're taking care of these patients. So what I've done is I've, I've completely prepared myself. And I know Eric has done the same uh, because I do have a lot of people that reach out to me and ask me my advice on stuff. And I want to be able to give them the best advice possible. Uh, but I also want to put in the caveat uh, that I am not some expert when it comes to ventilating uh, COVID-19 patients. And I, I think Eric, you would probably agree with me. I, I agree. I have not taken care of a COVID-19 patient. I think during round two, we are going to talk about pseudo-ARDS, and I am going to present a case that my wife actually had a positive COVID-19 patient that escalated to intubation, mechanical ventilation. And so I do want to hit on a few pearls and associate that case with the concept of pseudo-ARDS and, and look at it from that mindset. We're not going to go into great depth in a lot of areas, but we are going to hit on some high points and uh, look at it from that perspective. Perfect. Awesome. All right. So then there's, there's one more uh, little quick primer that we're going to put out there. And this is, I think, the ethos of mechanical ventilation. And that's, we don't fix people with mechanical ventilation. We breathe for them until the body heals. And that's so important when we're talking about uh, asthmatics or sick lung injury patients, uh, we're not going to fix them with the mechanical ventilator. People aren't going to go home on a mechanical, well, I guess someplace people could, uh, but that's not the goal. We're not trying to fix them with this. We're trying to take that, that effort of having to breathe off of them, let their body heal for a little bit. And then in the meantime, we don't want to screw anything up. 
I mean, we're taking their God-given right to breathe. Uh, a lot of these patients are getting paralyzed initially, and we're trying to control that. We're playing the, the role of the brain. So what are some of the things that we could do to completely screw these up? And that's what we're going to talk about, these knockouts, uh, things that may come up, sneak up on you with the ventilator, and then how to avoid those. So we're going to do this in Mortal Kombat style. We got three rounds. Round one, death by peep. And I'm going to be taking the uh, lion's share of that one. Round two, uh, Bauer's going to talk about pseudo ARDS. And then round three, everybody's talking about it, ventilator splitting. Should we or should we not? All right. Ding, ding, ding. Let's get into round one, death by peep. Now, Eric, I want you to think back to interfacility transport that you've been on. And uh, you get there and the patient's intubated. And what do you see? You walk in, they got an FiO2 of 100% and a PEEP of five. Have you ever seen that before? Absolutely. Yeah, right? It, it, they, they start cranking up the FiO2 and then the PEEP stays at five. You know what this reminds me of? Is it reminds me of uh, this, uh, the fire festival. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Uh, but when people are taking this FiO2 table and they're not following it. They're not going up to, uh, let's say if they're at a peep of 100% uh, going down to, or I'm sorry, an FIO2 of 100% going to a peep of uh, 24. Like we don't need to follow this thing to the T. Uh, but what happens is if you are increasing your FIO2 and you're not recruiting lung, it reminds me of this. And so I don't know if you've ever seen this documentary on Netflix, uh, but these guys took this island and what they did was uh, they invited all of these people to this island. They were going to have Blink-182. Uh, they were going to have uh, all these bands come, and they sold these tickets, and they had a huge response. Tons and tons and tons of people came, and they didn't have enough surface area to put them all. They didn't have enough food, and so everybody was getting angry. And whenever I see an FiO2 at, uh, you know, 100% and the PEEP is at 5, this is what I think about. And so the ARDS-NET trial uh, came out, and uh, they showed this PEEP FiO2 table. And this is not based off of any hard science at all. This is not based off of evidence. This is a check mark. It's a recommendation that, hey, if you're at 100% FiO2, uh, you should probably think about increasing your PEEP beyond five. Now, the problem is, is people took this literal. And so they were like, well, if I'm going to go up on my PEEP I, or my FiO2, I have to go up on my PEEP. One of the things that's being reported in COVID patients, COVID-19 patients, is that we have to actually, uh, I think Rory Spiegel said it best, we need to uncouple the FiO2 and the PEEP from each other. Uh, you're going to find that you probably don't need PEEPs higher than 10, and your FiO2 should be at 100%. We need to oxygenate better. And so that's why, yeah, this is this fire dilemma, what I call it, where you have a more FiO2 than surface area is a thing, uh, but we got to find that sweet spot to where uh, we're recruiting some of those dependent alveoli, but we're not hyper distending or hyper inflating uh, the alveoli up in zone one. So how do we find that? How do we titrate that peep? So I'm going to show you guys some techniques. Now, here's the thing. There's two different modes. You have volume mode and you have a pressure mode. And so the volume mode, I say, I want to get 500 mLs and the ventilator cranks its flow up to whatever it needs. Let's just say 60 liters and it gives that 60 liters 
until it gets to 60 liters per minute until it gets to uh, 500 mLs and then it drops down. And so that's a volume driven breath. The flow is consistent, uh, but we don't know what type of pressures that's going to generate. The pressures are variable. Now, all of your ventilators don't have waveforms. And I understand you're not going to have pressure volume loops on your ventilator. Uh, but I think when you're explaining this, it helps. It helps a lot if you can actually visualize what this looks like. And so uh, I'm going to show you this. On the x-axis here, we have pressure. And so the pressure is down here on the, on the bottom. And I always remember x-axis because buried treasures measured in the ground and x marks the spot. I don't know why that makes sense to me. And then on the, uh, the volume side, that's on the y-axis here. So I asked my daughter to start blowing up a balloon and I recorded it with my, my camera and I broke down each phase of this. And so this is the beginning phase right here. And so don't even think about the ventilator. Just think about the, the act of blowing up a balloon. Right when you start to blow into that balloon, and you, we're going to increase pressure going rightwards along the x-axis, it takes a little bit of pressure before you start to see a volume collect inside that balloon. And that's that, that critical opening pressure there. And so if you, you start blowing into it, and then finally, after you blow into it, you finally get a little bit of volume. And now for each centimeter of water pressure you add into that balloon, it's going to get a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger. And so that's what's happening here. We start seeing this nice uh, linear increase in volume for a specific pressure. Pressure, And then she gets all the ways up here. And now it's right back to that same problem we had down here where uh, you're adding pressure, but you're not necessarily seeing as big of an increase in volume. All right. So when I take this here and I add on this pressure volume loop. So this pressure volume loop is looking at exactly that. So here's the inspiratory side right here. And this is the, the ventilator delivering that breath to the patient. And then right here, we get a no flow state. This is the peak airway pressure. And then we, we exhale. Now, this little spot right here is the lower inflection point. And what this represents is when the alveoli begin to recruit. This is when we start to recruit alveoli. And then if we look up here, this is the upper inflection point. And so the upper inflection point is uh, when all of a sudden we start this fast, drastic drop down. This is the exhalation portion. And this is the lungs recoiling and forcing air out as we come back down and we can start all over again. And so this lower inflection point is really important because if we're trying to prevent the alveoli from closing all the way, opening, closing, opening, that cyclic opening and closing, uh, what we can do is uh, we can try to set our peep right here so it doesn't have to go all the ways down to this fully deflated mode every time. So that's what this is right here. So this green represents uh, the ideal peep here. And so this is somewhere between the lower inflection point and then the upper inflection point. So if I was, let's just say that uh, down here, this is like my peep of five. And I look and I see my alveoli aren't opening till here. Maybe I turn my peep up to 10. So I can start my peep right here and I don't have to keep going down to nothing and then coming back up and going down. And so if you are adding peep out of proportion, you're not getting any more recruitment. You're in a volume mode 
and you're increasing PEEP and all you're doing is seeing your pressures increase, your plateau pressure, um, then you're not recruiting any more lung. And if you were to see this on a pressure volume loop, it would look something like this. So right here, uh, I'm adding more pressure, but you see I'm not going upright. I'm not adding any more volume here. And so you actually get this little beaking that occurs. It looks like a little penguin beak here. And that's because I'm stretching those alveoli, but I'm not recruiting any more lung. I'm just adding pressure there. Now, it's important to note that what damages lung is not pressure. And we talk about barotrauma and everybody's like, oh, barotrauma, baro means pressure. That must be what caused. No, that's not what caused. What causes it is hyperdistension. It's the volume that hyperextends those alveoli. That's what actually causes the issue. So barotrauma is kind of a misnomer. So what we want to do is make sure we're not hyperextending those alveoli. And so there's something that came into play called driving pressure. And so driving pressure is the difference between your PEEP and your plateau pressure. Your PEEP and your plateau pressure. Because that is how much air we're moving back and forth. And so you do an inspiratory hold. It gives them a breath. It holds it. It holds it. And you look and you say, all right, well, let's say my plateau pressure is 30 and my PEEP is 20. Well, that gives me a driving pressure of 10. And so if you're adding PEEP and you notice that your plateau pressure just keeps increasing, you're making your driving pressure larger. And so what that is showing you is that you're hyperextending alveoli. You're not recruiting any more of that lung. So in this situation here, adding PEEP is not helping. Eric, anything you want to add to that? No, I think the aspect of driving pressure is essential. I think that when we look at driving pressure specifically based on the literature, that's really focusing on the ARDS patient. And I think your representation of the waveform and adding PEEP and seeing that corresponding rise in plateau pressure is great. And I think you can apply that in all sorts of patients. I think when you look at applying driving pressure and trying to keep a driving pressure, let's say below 15, uh, where that is going to be uh, advantageous to the patient. I think that is where we focus on just ARDS patients. Yeah, there was a study that came out, what was it? I believe it was Amato et al., yep. that looked at uh, driving pressure. And uh, they looked at trying to keep that, that under 15. Uh, and that's, like we said, the difference between uh, your PEEP and your plateau pressure. That's the driving, that's, that's how much, that's when you're each breath, what the movement is uh, that's where the movement is occurring, is between those two points. All right. Now, what if you are in a pressure mode? So how does a pressure mode work? A pressure mode is I set a pressure. I say, all right, I'm going to deliver 15 centimeters of water of pressure to the lung. And I don't care what the volume is. I mean, I do care. But uh, I, I'm just going to give 15 centimeters of water of pressure and then see what my exhale tidal volumes back or that come back which exhale tidal volumes are uh, VTE. And so I'm going to, let's just say I give 15 centimeters of water pressure and then I get back uh, 150. And I'm like, all right, well, that's not enough. I got to go up. So I go up to 20 centimeters of water pressure and then I get back maybe two ten, And then I, I keep playing around with it. And you're, you're titrating those pressures um, 
in accordance to what your desired uh, exhaled volume is, because that's how you're going to get those volumes. But uh, your volume's not guaranteed. The lung compliance can change. Uh, you can get a big old booger in the endotracheal tube, and that's going to throw off everything. You're going to reach those pressures sooner. So it's a lot harder to use a pressure volume loop um, and tell anything about recruitment if you're looking at your ventilator if, uh, if you're in a pressure mode. Because what the, the flow does, it's interesting. I think of it like when you're going to a gas station and you say, I want to put $20 on uh, the purple Prius out front. And uh, they say, all right, they put $20 on that tank. You go out there, you start pumping. It starts off at a normal rate. The flow is normal. But then as you approach that that limit that you put in, the $20, it starts to dial down the flow. And that's exactly what this mode does. Uh, as soon as you start getting close to that pressure, you said, I want 15 centimeters of water pressure. It doesn't want to overshoot that. So it gets up to it and then the flow starts to vary. And so when you don't have a consistent flow, it makes it very hard uh, to tell anything about compliance. But there is some stuff that we can tell. And again, I think this is best if we just look at the actual uh, graphical representation because it's going rep to help you better visualize this later on. So here you can see that, let's just say that uh, right here is 15 centimeters of water pressure. And we say, all right, we're going to give uh, 15 the ventilator right here starts to turn up. You can see the pressure starts to increase, but then you see, unlike the other one where we had a kind of a very, where it looked like a football shape, and then we, if we over-distended it, we got a beak. That's not going to happen here because right when it gets to this point, flow starts to die down. We start to get that decelerating flow, and that's so it doesn't go over this pressure. And so it, it's just like it just rides the wall up. And then it comes back down. So if we let's just say that we increase our PEEP here. So I'm going to say here's our, I, I kind of just made that other waveform in the back subtle. But let's say I take my PEEP and I go from five, uh, we'll say to like seven. And I increase my PEEP. Now what's going to happen is the spot between my, my pressure that I set and my PEEP, that's kind of my driving pressure for this. And you can see I'm spending less time with flow. And so flow over time equals volume. So if you look at the volume here, what happened is the volume actually decreased. And so I could say that PEEP is not helping in that situation uh, because I'm increasing the PEEP, but I'm not increasing the pressure here. Now, uh, could you increase this pressure to say a 20? and then see if that helps. Yeah, you could, but you wouldn't want to keep increasing your pressure, especially when you start getting beyond uh, like 30, where you would want like a safe plateau pressure, uh, because there's a good chance that that pressure is actually uh, what the alveoli are seeing, and it could uh, hyperextend those. So once you get to a certain spot, and you know, usually that spot is right around 30, um, you don't want to keep increasing your PEEP and then increasing your pressure and increase because what that's doing is it's just increasing uh, your, your distension of those alveoli. And so if you're increasing your PEEP and you're seeing that your volumes are dropping, well, say to yourself, well, what is my pressure at? All right, I'm at 15. Could I go up a little bit more? Yeah, probably. I could probably recruit more. I could increase my mean airway pressure a little bit, um, but you don't want to keep that, that process going uh, because you're just going to keep increasing pressure and that's going to hyperextend those alveoli.
And when we talk about hyperextending alveoli, uh, that's a real problem. And uh, recently, I, uh, I wrote an article on a de-recruitment maneuvers. We always talk about recruitment maneuvers, but a de-recruitment trial, because there are some patients that they're going to follow that PEEP FiO2 scale. And they're going to get up to a 20 of PEEP. And you're going to walk in and they're going to tell you, yeah, we can't get this, this guy or this, this girl or kid off of, uh, we can't get them above 65% for an SpO2. And one of the things that can happen is as you blow up that alveoli, you can actually start to clamp off part of the capillary. And if you clamp off part of this capillary, what you're doing is creating dead space. Have you ever seen anything like that, Eric, where uh, you go in and they've hyper-recruited, uh, maybe they went up to a peep of 20, uh, but they never came back down and now they're actually blanching off those capillaries. I, I have never seen that. I know the case that you had, uh, and that was one of the first cases that I have, uh, you know, discussed. Uh, I have not seen it personally, no. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not, it's not very common because usually what we see, like we said in the, in the beginning of this, is we see people going too low on their PEEP and uh, not utilizing PEEP smart. Uh, but especially with COVID-19, uh, the, the patients recruit fairly well. If you read the case reports, uh, it's not like they got these super low exhale tidal volumes like we're used to seeing with uh, ARDS, uh, they recruit very well. So if you're following that and you're trying to go too high on your PEEP, uh, you could run into an issue to where you're hyperextending those alveoli and in that process, you're blanching off the capillaries. So here's my thought process. And Eric, you know, tell me if you, if you think something different. But if I walk in and they got a patient on 15 of PEEP, their SpO2 looks great. They look like they're optimized. Driving pressures are below 15. Uh, my plateau pressures look good. I'm not, I'm not going to walk in and touch anything. I'm just going to be like, all right, this looks good. That's the patient that I'm going to clamp the ET to when I switch them over to my vent. I'm not going to try to mess around with it. But if I walk in, they got a patient on 20 of PEEP. Pulse ox is down in the toilet. Uh, the, the ventilation perfusion ratio is off. And they're having really hard time ventilating this person. That's a patient that I might, might say, hey, you know what? The knob turns both ways, as my, uh, my friend Brandon Odo says. Uh, let's try going down with our PEEP and seeing if we get any, uh, any benefit or any response from that. What do you think about that? No, I think that, that in, in cases like that, I think you have to start from, from scratch. And that doesn't mean that you immediately make a change. You get a good history you talk to the referring providers, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, and identify the escalation of why they went to 20 a peep. What is going on now that maybe is, was not going on prior, or has this patient actually not improved? Has the patient declined? And then I think you make you know, clinical decisions based on that. And I, I think what you said is perfect. Awesome. Yeah. I, I really like this graph here. Uh, this was actually out of a, uh, a, a textbook that I have. Um, and it shows how the vascular resistance changes as you add uh, lung volume. And so you can see at the really low lung volumes, uh, you have increased vascular resistance. And I would imagine that's probably due to hypoxic vasoconstriction. And then up at the very high lung volumes, 
you are actually blanching off the that vasculature, the pulmonary vasculature, and creating dead space. And so, uh, really, the the best blood flow through your lungs is at functional residual capacity, probably somewhere around 120 mLs. What's left in your in your functional residual capacity is just how much air is left in your excuse me, left in your lungs after uh, exhalation, at the end of exhalation. So that changes if you add PEEP. But if you start applying high amounts of PEEP, and even if this patient is a patient that has consolidations and filtrations progressing into ARDS, what can happen is you can take some of the good alveoli and you can hyperextend those. And then the ones that are not good and the ones that have the consolidations in it aren't really going to respond to PEEP anyway. And so you can stress these ones out and actually decrease uh, the VQ ratio that way and decrease the amount of perfusion that's actually getting to these alveoli. And so I, I actually put on Twitter, I said bilateral infiltrates, uh, influenza A, a PEEP of 20, FiO2 of 100%, and an SpO2 is 65, PPLAT, blah, blah, blah. Drop the PEEP to 15, SpO2 increases to 78. Drop the PEEP to 10, SpO2 increases to 85. Drop the PEEP to 5, and now I'm at 93%. Is de-recruitment trial a thing? And if you've never checked out this page, Critical Concepts, you can just go to Google and look up Critical Concepts over peeping. Uh, this is something that I think we might see uh, with this COVID-19. And that's why I put it as one of the first knockouts is if people are trying, because uh, you're getting really low pulse oxes. They're calling some of these patients uh, happy hypoxemic patients because they're not acting like they have an SpO2 of 50% and they're able to talk to you. And so they're uh, proning them and they're having them prone themselves, actually putting them on non-invasive. Uh, but what could happen is you're like, all right, I'm at hundred percent FiO2. What do I do now to increase uh, oxygenation? And uh, the first thing a lot of people think of is adding PEEP. And if you're increasing that PEEP, you're going to hit a, a spot of diminishing return. And so uh, making sure that your increases in PEEP are actually recruiting more lung and not just overstretching the alveoli is so important. And I thought it was, uh, this is my favorite saying in this article, like most things in critical care, there's always a right amount of PEEP. You may, you just may not know what it is, but if you remember that the dial turns in both directions, you'll have a better chance of finding that sweet spot. All right. Anything else you want to add to that, Eric, in round one? No, I think that's perfect. We often, especially with PEEP, we often are always increasing. And I think that that, that is a perfect way to end that is to understand that, that the dial does turn both ways. And, and just because going up is, is usually the right way doesn't mean going down is not the correct uh, treatment for that specific patient and that specific disease process. Awesome, man. All right. Ding, ding, ding. You're in round two. What is pseudo ARDS? All right. So round two, we're going to focus on a true COVID-19 positive patient and pseudo ARDS. The reason we're entering into this round two with that mindset is pseudo ARDS is really the thought process that oftentimes True, true ARDS is very, very rare. And there's more and more literature out there, more findings showing that ARDS patients or what they're deemed as ARDS patients truly 
are not. And it's, it's a lack of early recruitment. It's a lack of, uh, it really goes back to early identification and using some of the uh, ArgeNet trial uh, treatment modalities using lung protective tidal volumes and uh, you know, really trying to protect that lung for further injury. And it goes into what's called atrogenic causes. And so we're going to talk about that thought process, um, but I'm going to start off with a case. And, and I want to use this case to highlight the whole pseudo ARDS. And really, because we're in this COVID-19 pandemic, how would you see a patient escalate from maybe whether that's a 911 call, maybe this is a patient in a transfer setting, what decision-making process is, is going into, does this patient need to be intubated? So let's say we have a 48-year-old male patient that comes in. Uh, he was diagnosed by his family physician uh, about five days prior with a bilateral pneumonia. He was giving, given uh, Leviquin, and um, he has started on a round of Rocephin when he gets into the ER. He is tachypnic. Uh, he has quite a bit of pain on inspiration. Uh, he is hypoxic has an SPO2 of 89% on room error when he arrives. They escalate to CPAP and they have him on a CPAP of six centimeters of water. Um, when we look at the escalation of innovation, why would we go to innovation? Well, this patient started having some mental status changes. Um, work of breathing was definitely getting more labored. And we know with any bi-level ventilation, uh, whether we're using BiPAP or CPAP, any invasive ventilation, we always wanna make sure we have a patient that can maintain their own airway, control their secretions. Uh, Tyler hit on this perfectly, that these COVID-19 patients are patients that are having a very poor ability to oxygenate, but they have great lung compliance. And so when we look at the ventilation side of, of our you know, ability to exhale properly. Um, we should have a patient in that setting that has a normal ability to maintain their CO2. So that is definitely an area when we look at true respiratory failure, we classify that as, and we always look first at the CO2. Is that CO2 greater than 50? And then we always get an ABG. And if that PaO2 is less than 60 or 60 or less, that is true respiratory failure. So this patient escalated very, very quickly to uh, a high CO2 uh, and had mental status changes and was intubated. So when we escalate to intubation, this patient was on 100% FiO2 and has a total PEEP initially of 10. Now I wanna go back and, and, and highlight, remember the CPAP was at six. So why would this patient need a higher PEEP to maintain that level of oxygenation? The thing that we have to understand is that we are causing a de-recruitment. And when we RSI a patient and paralyze this patient, their ability to recruit their own distal airways, those little lung units is much, much better than when they're paralyzed and not moving any volume on their own. So that is usually the reason why I think we're seeing providers immediately escalate to high peeps because if they do transition from standard nasal cannula to maybe a non-rebreather to high flow nasal cannula and they escalate to CPAP, 
And then all of a sudden they paralyze them, innovate them, and now they're needing a higher level of PEEP to maintain any level of oxygenation. It's probably because of that de-recruitment. Tyler, what do you think about that? No, totally agree, man. Absolutely. So uh, you got this guy intubated yet? He is intubated now, yeah. All right, here you go. So intubated, as I said, 100% FiO2, uh, exactly what Tyler says, right? They, they escalated to 100% FiO2, and I don't have a problem with that on the initial uh, patient. Really, any patient that we, we have, it is absolutely fine to go 100% FiO2. And then if you're using the ArgeNet PEEP uh, FiO2 slide is what they call it, you know, you're immediately dialing down that FiO2 to the lowest amount possible and slowly incrementally increasing each one based on the table. Now, what is our ABG? All right, so let's just keep in mind, we got 100% FiO2, and also he doesn't have a filter in that ET tube. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, here's your ABG. All right, so here's his ABG, and, and you can see his pH. He is acidotic. He's got a 7.02. He has, we will come back to the PaO2. He has a CO2 that's 24, so that is showing an alkalosis and a bicarb of 10. So this patient is in a partially compensated metabolic acidosis with an associated hypoxemia. Notice that PaO2 is 60. So we go back to what was his initial end title. It was greater than 50. That gives that provider that inclination. Again, this was my wife's patient. Uh, she you know, discussed this with the other uh, physician attending in the ER. They made the determination to innovate based on those uh, two factors, plus obviously the mental status change and the work of breathing was, was escalating. Um, so what do, we, what do we look at from the perspective of now, is this patient an ARDS patient? And this is where we're going to go into the whole pseudo ARDS and look at the criteria. And the first criteria that we're going to escalate to is the concept of a FiO2 and uh, uh, PaO2 FiO2 ratio. All right. So if I have somebody on a hundred percent, how do I, how do I guess what their PAO2 should be, Eric? Well, there's a couple really quick ways. The easiest way that we use in the field is five times your FIO2. So if they're on a hundred percent, five times that their PAO2 should be at least 500. So just times that by 500. Awesome. All right. So now the PF ratio. Yeah, so PF ratio is where we actually obviously have to have an ABG. So you're going to look at the PAO2, FIO2 ratio. And so our PAO2 was 60, our uh, FIO2 was 100% or 1.0, and we just divide. We divide our PAO2 into FIO2, and you can see that we have a ratio of 60. That is very, very low, and we're going to go through the the different levels of what we would deem as decision-making points based on that ratio. Another way you can look at that from a, an average, if let's say you get at a bedside and you have an ABG and they give you, you know, you have a PAO2 and they, they have been delivering 100% FIO2 or whatever it is, you can take what's called a bedside PAO2 um, formula that's 700 so 700 millimeters of mercury is an average atmospheric pressure. Uh, you're going to multiply that by the FIO2. So let's say this patient obviously is 100%. So it would be 700 times 1.0 is 700. And then you subtract 50. So that patient should have 
a PaO2 of at least 650 using that way, that method. When we look at the mild, moderate, and severe criteria, notice that mild would be two to 300. Uh, we are in the severe category, we are less than 100. And when we look at this criteria and we identify really these concepts, where we're, where we're looking at is what's called the Berlin definition of ARDS. And we're gonna look at the Berlin definition and then we're gonna compare that to uh, what's called a European consensus or an American European consensus. So when we look at the, the first criteria for the Berlin definition, number one is any patient that we would deem ARDS, the first thing you wanna identify is this a patient that has a new onset worsening respiratory decline. Uh, and that is something when you look at a chest X-ray and you look at a patient A that has bilateral lung involvement, they'll have what's called a ground glass appearance and you compare that with a patient that is, let's say, a CHFer with chronic CHF and they have pulmonary edema, those two chest x-rays look very, very similar. And so this criteria uses specific points of reference. And that first one is, is this an, a, a, an onset that is acute? And that is, that is key. Number two, ARDS patients are going to have bilateral involvement. You will have both lungs involved. This is a global problem. You're going to have um, most often bilateral infiltrates, pulmonary effusions in both um, bases. And when you look at specifically that chest x-ray again, um, you know, do you have that grand glass appearance? Do you have bilateral involvement, acute onset? There are other ways of, of then looking at this, right? Look at the patient's medications. Do they have history of CHF? Do they have the medications that would alert you? Is this more of a slow onset? And think about also ARDS patients have either what's called a direct or indirect lung injury. Most often we see these indirect lung injury problems. Uh, pneumonia is a great example of indirect lung injury. And that's why we're using the pseudo ARDS for round two to compare that with these COVID patients. Because I think initially these patients definitely appear to be that ARDS patient and that initial presentation, they are not. They can e easily escalate to that and we're gonna hit on that here in a second. And that's where we get into our last criteria is the oxygenation side, that, that PaO2, FiO2 ratio. Are we in that severe category? Well, notice that mild is gonna be between that 200 and 300 and that you used to be looked at as just an acute lung injury. That was significant. If you take you right now and you take a standard PaO2, even with a ratio in room air, our PaO2 FiO2 ratio is huge. It's six, 700. So even a two to 300 ratio is pretty significant. And that was classified as acute lung injury. So what would we look at from a patient perspective in a COVID-19 scenario. This 48-year-old male, let's look at his chest x-ray. I want you to notice that we definitely have a bilateral involvement. Um, we have a PA view here. Uh, anytime we, we look at a chest x-ray, if you can't get a PA view, that's going to be your most optimal view. 
uh, we, we definitely look at our heart silhouette. We want to have a heart silhouette in a PA view that's 50% uh, of our total lung, or excuse me, our total width of our chest cavity, which we definitely do. But notice that both lower right lobe, lower to middle left lobe, we have opacities. We have this, uh, you know, nasty appearance in both lung fields. And when you look at COVID-19 chest x-rays, if you've looked at many of these, and I, I, I have a few docs that I, I have talked to about this, uh, Peter Antivy is one of them, uh, where we were texting back and forth. And he said, it's almost like a copy and paste. Every single chest x-ray is looking the same. Where even in Italy right now, they're doing chest x-rays immediately on these patients and they are diagnosing COVID patients without a test on that initial assessment based on a chest x-ray. That's how definitive that is. So this, this gentleman definitely has that chest x-ray. So here's my question to you, Eric. Let's say that I have this patient and you have this patient and I decide that I'm going to put him in APRV. It's a mode of ventilation, airway pressure release ventilation. And I'm going to try some, uh, some different maneuvers. You go with the conventional settings and let's say my PF ratio improves, um, but yours doesn't. Does that mean that my patient no longer has ARDS and now yours still does? Yeah. And that's a great, um, way to segue is that is really the mindset of pseudo ARDS. And that's where we get into the, the dilemma. It, it really is a dilemma where we look at the ARGENET trial, uh, which is a landmark study that we all utilize on a day in and day out basis. And we're, we're taught, hey, anytime you have a patient that has plateau pressures greater than 30 that we cannot reduce based on lowering tidal volume down to four mils per kilo, you know, you have this sick lung, we're taught to use lung protective tidal volumes. And that is one of the thoughts of pseudo ARDS that we're not recruiting that lung quick enough. We're being too gentle. And so by using the, the method you just laid out with APRV, being aggressive with the recruitment and reassessing that PaO2, FiO2 ratio within 12 to 24 hours, if you have an S in increase from that initial severe category, whatever it is, and now you're greater than 300, that patient is deemed to not be ARDS. And that's why I, when I started this section, I said true ARDS is very rare. True ARDS patients are almost impossible to oxygenate. And what you just laid out is exactly what we'd want to do in that setting. Yeah. So in, so there was this, uh, a post by Josh Farkas from Palm Crit, and he laid out the Procevo trial and how they actually probably had a better definition of what ARDS was. And so this is, this came out in uh, 2013 in the new England journal of medicine. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go through a ton of it, but what I thought was interesting, uh, was the, uh, the definition. So ARDS was defined as according to the American European consensus, uh, conference criteria, but, uh, they had to meet the Berlin criteria, which is what Eric just talked about in the beginning uh, to really be enrolled. Um, but then this is what was interesting. What they did was they tried to optimize mechanical ventilation for 12 to 24 hours. And they wanted to see if they could improve the oxygenation and thus the PF ratio. And so they would focus on recruitment maneuvers. 
And they asked themselves, did the PF ratio improve uh, greater than 150? And so this was a trial looking at proning patients. Uh, but I really liked this definition that they had because it allowed time for uh, the intensivist to get off some of the fluid, uh, maybe de-resuscitate what the uh, ED did. Uh, we know that these patients have increased uh, cytokines, inflammatory mediators, and they're very prone to getting uh, lung water and getting uh, capillary leaking. And so all of that fluid that you're give, giving somebody that maybe is septic is going to end up in their lung. You're going to get this extra vascular lung water. And so, yeah, take some time, try to drain off some of that, optimize them on the vent, and then say, uh, did this patient's PF ratio improve? What do you think about that definition, Eric? No, I fully agree. And I think what you said as far as the whole fluid aspect, that's another part of the whole atrogenic uh, cause of these patients escalating into, you know, the presumptive ARDS is that that saltwater drowning using, you know, 30 mils a kilo of normal saline, you know, and not using adjusted body weight, you know, just flooding them, maybe, you know, using or, or maybe we should be pushing, you know, passive leg raising and or IVC collapse assessment, you know, things like that, not just flooding them with all this volume, maybe going LR. There are a lot of other reasons why these patients decline, uh, not just because we're not being aggressive with recruitment. Perfect, man. So, so knockout number two was one, make sure it's not cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Uh, make sure you're, you're looking at the heart if you have an ultrasound or it's not. Remember, just because we're in a, a pandemic doesn't mean every patient has this. Um, but then second, remember that uh, we, we have these leaky capillaries. We don't want to give tons and tons of volume to them. I think what's been said is keep them uh, dry, but not too dry, if that's not vague enough for you. Uh, but realize that uh, we can try to optimize them on the ventilator. They're going to do well with proning. It sounds like they do well with APRV. Uh, so it's good to just keep that in the back of your mind. Anything you want to add to that, Eric? No, I think the thing with these COVID-19 patients that we, we definitely have read and, and learned is that, like you said, they, they, they are going to do really well with probably the reverse of what we teach from the standard ARGENET trial. And they're going to respond probably favorably to higher FIO2s and more PEEP in moderation. Um, you know, the majority of them do well. It, it's when they escalate to true ARDS, where now their compliance becomes poor. You're seeing high P-plats, you're seeing high driving pressures. That's where you have to completely change your overall mindset. That initial approach uh, has to be a little bit different than what we are normally accustomed to. Perfect, man. All right. So now round three, everybody's favorite topic, ding, 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 ventilator splitting. So we're just going to start right here and say, no, don't do this. <laughs> I don't think this makes any sense in our environment. Eric, what do you think? No, I, I agree a thousand, a thousand percent. Uh, I don't even know why we're talking about it. 
Yeah, that's why I put it at the end because I knew we'd both run long on both yeah. of ours. And so I thought we could just – but here's, here's the thing. If you were going to do this, uh, you probably want to decouple the patient from the vent. You don't want the patient triggering breaths. So you're probably going to put them in like a, control, a controlled uh, mandatory ventilation. Uh, you're probably going to use a pressure mode. And then, you, like I said, you don't want the patient triggering at all. This is what they're saying that uh, is probably ideal. Put them in a pressure mode so that way if this tube clamps off over here, it's not sending all of the volume over here. Uh, and then you don't want this guy triggering the breath and then hyperventilating this guy. But the, this is not for our transport setting. It's kind of fun for the ventilator nerds to play around with this thought process. Uh, but this is definitely not something that we uh, need to concern ourselves with. All right, guys, this is it, man. This is, hopefully this helped a little bit. Like we said, this is not all inclusive. This is not everything you need to know to run a ventilator, but it wasn't supposed to be. We just wanted to put uh, some stuff on your radar and really just look out for these things that can approach you. And uh, if you have a patient that's too high, of, uh, too high a peep, if you're increasing your peep and your pressures are increasing in a volume mode or your volumes are decreasing in a pressure mode, uh, consider that this may not be a patient that needs a ton of peep. And uh, uncoupling the peep from the FiO2, as Rory Spiegel pointed out, I think that that's going to, that's going to buy you, um, I don't know how to say buy it. It's, it's going to help you out a lot. One of the things that is uh, notable is that the FIO, you're not aiming for an SPO2 of hundred percent. And I think if you are aiming for that, it's going to uh, put you down this torturous path of chasing your tail. Uh, I'm high. I'm happy with uh, the mid to high eighties, um, if I can get up into the 90s, great, but don't aim for 100%. Eric, you want to sum up your part real quick? Yeah, I think we, we have to understand that, that these patients in general are, are much different. And I think we're finding that mechanically ventilated COVID-19 patients are a, a little bit different. And we automatically go to what we know. Uh, what I would say to the new provider out there that, and I don't mean new provider, but maybe this is new to you, providing mechanical ventilation support, make one change at a time. Um, you know, try to educate yourself, make things simple. Uh, they do respond very well, as we said, to high FI2s, lower peeps, but don't be afraid to increase that. Don't forget that if they're on CPAP and you have a patient that is then paralyzed uh, based on the whole rapid sequence innovation protocol. They will be recruit. You are probably going to need to have a higher peep in those patients initially, um, but don't be afraid, as Tyler said, to turn that knob the other way. And just continue to provide the best care you can. That's all we can do. Perfect, man. And we're going to leave you with this again. We don't fix people with the vent, but we breathe for them until the body heals. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Uh, if you guys want to get in touch with us, uh, we'll have our emails and all that in the show notes. Uh, you can look us up on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Okay, thank you so much to Eric and Tyler for the presentation. So we are going to uh, dive right in. I'm going to start off with kind of a General question about pathophysiology. One of our attendees wants to know, can you explain the pathophysiology of COVID-19 and what uh, exactly is happening with how the virus attacks the lungs? 
Yeah, uh, this is Eric. I'll take that question, and then Tyler is going to actually expand on that and interrelate that with the L and H phenotypes um, and get rid of that question as well. Um, I think the big thing about COVID-19 is that it, it loves to attack the lungs, and it specifically attacks what's called type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes. Um, type 1 pneumocytes are really responsible for gas exchange. Type 2 pneumocytes are responsible for surfactant production. And these, um, you know, bad cells, macrophage cells are starting to attack that area. Um, we have a huge release of what's called inflammatory mediators. These are macrophage cells um, that, that start attacking. Uh, we start seeing a cytokine release. And two specific cytokines that we see released in this disease process and really in any type of disease process that attacks the lungs like this are what are called interleukin-1 and interleukin-6. Um, interleukin-1 specifically will trigger a fever. It triggers and stimulates the hypothalamus. Uh, interleukin-6 is more of a pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine, myokine. And what you see is you see it, these start attacking and breaking down our endothelial cells that line the alveoli and line the capillary bed. We actually call this the endothelial glycocalyx. If you could imagine little hair-like projections that are surrounding or layering those endothelial cells. And if you were to go outside and, and, and start pulling grass up, that's just exactly what is happening. So that starts... Uh, causing these holes to appear. And you start having interstitial fluid creep that creeps in and around the alveoli. And now that causes compression in and around the alveoli, and it also causes fluid to fill the alveoli. And that does something very, very bad. It actually disrupts the surfactant water ratio. Um, that surfactant is very important in maintaining a low um, pressure within that alveoli. And what we would have without surfactant is a very high water surface tension that would cause almost an implosion inward and cause collapse of the alveoli. Well, that's essentially what happens when you start adding more volume and you disrupt that surfactant um, ratio. Well, this ensues, it causes alveolar collapse. And this is not just cause, causing uh, havoc on one alveoli, this is actually causing havoc globally. We have approximately 600 million alveoli. And so if you have a global attack on the lungs, you have all these alveoli that are affected in different ways. This also affects how these alveoli fill. It affects um, you know, the, the overall pressures within smaller alveoli relating, related to larger alveoli, and so you, you have a big, big problem. So that global attack ensues. Um, these inflammatory mediators also start pulling in these neutrophils, and these neutrophils release what's called an oxygen-free radical. This causes a global hypoxia. This global hypoxia continues on, you know, and, and if we were to look at a, a patient, this patient would obviously probably have a, a cough, a dry cough. They would have a fever based on that interleukin-1 stimulating the hypothalamus. And if we were to look at an ABG on an initial patient, that patient would most likely be in an uncompensated respiratory alkalosis with a, a level of hypoxemia. Their PAO2 would be low. 
Well, what causes uh, problems downstream is that low PaO2 causes this chemoreceptor response. And that chemoreceptor response causes our sympathetic nervous system to kick into high gear. So that causes that increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate, our work of breathing increases, our tidal volume increases. And if this continues, obviously I'm going deep into this disease process, we start having a, a systemic chemoreceptor response that causes an inflammatory response globally that causes global capillary permeability to increase, causing everything to dilate, and that's what causes that global surge response and hypotension. So that is basically going from that attack on the lungs all the way down to a you know global sepsis. And I want Tyler to then take it and 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 differentiate the two types of phenotypes: type one, uh, type L, and type H. Yeah, can you hear me okay? I'm coming at you uh, yeah. live from the OB unit at the hospital. <laughs> Sounds good, Tyler. No, that was a that was a great breakdown, Eric. So we started seeing this delineation between two types of COVID-19 patients, and that was type L and then type H. And so what this was is when initially, I think when the case reports started coming out of Wuhan and Italy, uh, it looked like it was like presenting like ARDS, uh, complete whiteout on the lungs, chest actually looked bad, but then we started seeing this different type of presentation. And I say we, when I say we, I mean what the literature is showing. Uh, and that was like, they, they were calling it the happy hypoxemic patient. And that was the patient that's lungs didn't look horrible, but they were coming in with an SpO2 of 50%, uh, but sitting up in their bed texting. And they were responding very well to positive pressure ventilation. And so the two different types, the type L, uh, think of type L as like that happy hypoxemic patient. Um, they have a, a low elastics, so pretty nor normal compliance on the ventilator. You're going to find you're getting a great exhale tidal volumes out of them, uh, but they just got this like pulse ox that will not come up. And so you try different things with them. You try uh, proning them. You try exposing different areas of the lungs to different types of blood flow. And though, that's the L type there. And you're going to know that because it's going to be easier to ventilate them. Uh, as soon as you put them on the vent, you'll be able to look at those numbers. And that's why if you can avoid, you know, the BVM as long as possible, and if you can actually get an, a quantitative feedback off of this, uh, it's really going to be beneficial to uh, not just say, yeah, it feels like it's harder to bag them, uh, but you can actually get a number to qualify that. And then the H type is going to be the, it kind of looks a lot like your ARDS. And so they have high elastance, a decrease in gas volume, and that's probably due to the increased edema. They got a lot more extravascular lung water. And you can think of the H as like high lung weight, probably a lot more pulmonary edema. If you were to take their lungs out and weigh them, they would be a lot heavier uh, than the patient that is the L type. And so that's how you differentiate those two. And I think the, the question later on that I saw was, you know, how would you optimize each of these different types, phenotypes on the ventilator? And I, I think you would just naturally fall into uh, the progression of saying, hey, uh, this patient is very hard to ventilate. We're going to go for a lung protective strategy, as opposed to if you see an L-type and you're getting really good exhale tidal volumes, uh, probably going up with your PEEP out of proportion of your FiO2 and following that PEEP FiO2 scale to the T is going to lead you down a very dangerous spot. Uh, because if you do that, you're going to be 
hyper-distending the alveoli as opposed to actually uh, recruiting more for gas exchange. And so I would, I would caution, every, all of these patients should probably be at 100% FiO2, uh, but you're going to find that you don't need that high a PEEP, especially in the L-type. Uh, so, uh, Tyler, you mentioned patient positioning a little bit. Our next question has to do with that. Uh, why does proning help with oxygen saturation? I don't understand how changing the position of the patient affects this. And are uh, these patients who are prone also being placed on CPAP? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I think proning has really been something that's uh, come out of this pandemic that's uh, getting a lot of attention, and it's good that it's getting that attention. So if you think about the lungs in three zones, so you got the, the very bottom portion. Let's just say you're laying flat, and you're looking at the, the posterior aspect of the lungs. Uh, what you would see is that uh, the hydrostatic pressure of the blood is higher there, and that's just because of gravity. So you have lots of blood just sitting in the, the lower lung units, and so you have a higher amount of perfusion, but you actually have a lower amount of ventilation. And then if you go to the very top of the lung, since all the blood is down at the bottom because you're laying flat, the top part, or we call it zone one, that's got really good ventilation, uh, but the perfusion is lacking just because all the blood is down at the, the, uh, the posterior aspect. And so by sh the patient shifting their weight, and it doesn't always have to be on their belly. I mean, uh, they can lay on their side, they can lay on another side, uh, you're, you're getting more ventilation to other areas, but you're also adjusting the perfusion. And so those areas that we uh, have in the bottom, or if you're laying, if you're laying supine, the, the alveolar units on the posterior aspect, we call those dependent uh, alveoli. And you can recruit those with PEEP. But the reason that they're smaller is because the blood supply, the opposing force around the alveoli, you have more blood around them. And so the opposing pressure is going to be higher, and so it's harder to recruit those. And you also have things like the weight of the heart on those, the weight of the chest. So by flipping the patient, we can take the weight of the heart off of the lungs, we can take the chest wall, and we can try to recruit some of those, uh, those dependent alveoli on the posterior portion uh, by flipping the patient around. And it's really cool. There's uh, some awesome videos of patients that are on either a high-flow nasal cannula or CPAP and they're adjusting themselves. They're not intubated, but they're in bed, and then the person will walk in, the provider, and say, hey, you know, flip on your right side, flip on your left side, and they're trying to equalize that ventilation to perfusion ratio so that way they can get the patient oxygenated better. It's fascinating. And uh, let's talk a little bit about using uh, uh, BVMs. Next question, I'm an EMT, not trained on ventilators, but I want to make sure I understand PEEP correctly for using BVMs in COVID patients. Can you please advise on that? Eric, I've been yeah. talking a lot. You want to take that one? Yeah. No. I think, you know, like we talked about in the webinar, these patients are doing really well with high FIO2s, and, you know, the PEEP needs to be in moderation. Don't be afraid to go up slowly, but also understand some patients may need, especially if you're if you're moving those patients from CPAP, for example, and then you have escalated, uh, they have been RSI, they've been paralyzed. Understand that you're going to have significant de-recruitment, and it may take more PEEP once they're innovated than what they were seeing with CPAP. Um, and so I think you, you definitely need to 
use a peep valve if you don't have um, a peep valve actually part of the BVM. Um, I think when you're transitioning patients over uh, from a BVM to uh, any mechanical ventilator and you're using any amount of, of PEEP, I would say greater than five. So, you know, if you're at eight to 10, uh, and this is going to go into another question, uh, you know, you need to make sure that you're clamping that ET tube when you move that patient over if you do disconnect that BVM um, with that added PEEP. Tyler, do you have anything to add there? No, you know, when you're talking about a BVM, you're talking about a lot of just feel stuff, unless you have a manometer on that. You know, if you're increasing your PEEP and your airway pressures just keep going up higher and higher, uh, you're just distending those alveoli. And like you saw in that pressure volume loop, if you were to actually look at this on a graph, you would see that it's beaking out, which essentially just means I'm increasing pressure without a increase in volume. I like the pictures of my daughter where she's blowing up that balloon, you get to a spot to where uh, the same centimeter of water of pressure that before bought you a certain amount of volume uh, no longer does that. And now it's just distending those alveoli. And so when we talk about barotrauma, uh, it's kind of a misnomer because we don't injure the alveoli with pressure. We actually injure them by hyperextending those. And when we look at what PEEP does, if it's not recruiting lung, it's just hyperextending those alveoli very hard to tell with a BVM. I'd say if you stay below 10 uh, and don't be afraid to go up to 10 with your uh, PEEP on a BVM, you'll, you'll probably uh, catch the lion's share of these patients without doing any harm. Yeah, and I will add that that when we when we look at a BVM, BVMs are, are great devices. You definitely need to understand that you can cause harm. Um, you need to think about just watching for enough chest rise, squeezing that BVM very slowly. And what that's doing is that's simulating an increased inspiratory phase like you would be on a ventilator extending that eye time. Um, so as long as you're not excessively raising that pressure, um, like Tyler said, looking at that mammometer, not going above 20, squeezing that BVM very slowly, watching slow chest rise, and not over ventilating that patient as far as a rate goes, um, I think you can do you can do very well with a BBM. Staying on the topic of uh, potential lung damage sort of leads us into the next question here. COVID-19 does not seem to be the ARDS we are used to. Chasing a pulse ox of 100% could lead to lung damage in COVID patients. Can you explain a little more about the difference uh, the differences between the presentation of ARDS patients and the presentation of COVID patients? Yeah, so um, I, I can start off on that one, Eric. And yeah, if you want yeah, to go ahead. Go ahead. No, um, go ahead, dude. So I, I, I think we kind of hit on this earlier, but I, I, I think that it bears repeating that uh, we will still see ARDS patients right now. Like just because we're in a pandemic doesn't necessarily mean everybody is a COVID-19 patient. And so those ARDS patients would present with a very low uh, compliance we would have a really hard time getting air movement. We'd see our, our volumes going down to like 200, 250. And then to make up for that with minute volume, we'd have to increase the rate very high, you know, really high. Knowing that there's these two types, these phenotypes, the type L and type H, um, if you see a, a patient that, uh, and, and there's ultrasound findings as too that are gonna go beyond the scope of this webinar. Uh, but if you have a strong suspicion 
that this patient is one of these L-type, these ha happy hypoxemic, you just want to be very careful with uh, the PEEP because if you're titrating PEEP up because let's say you're, what, what generally happens is you, you get your FiO2 up to 100% and then your patient's pulse ox is still 70s, 80s. And then the next like natural progression is to start increasing mean airway pressure. And so what you'll see is people start increasing their PEEP and then they get these PEEPs up to 18, 20, 25. And at that point, you're just blanching off the capillaries. You're not recruiting anymore. And so then what will happen, and that another natural progression is just to start increasing the eye time out until eventually either you inverse the IE ratio, which means your inspiratory time is longer than your exhalation time, or you switch to something like an airway pressure release ventilation. APRV has actually been known to help out a lot, and essentially it's just like uh, putting someone on CPAP, except every five seconds you rip the mask off them for a second, let them kind of exhale, and then let it snap back on them. Uh, so we shouldn't be aiming for 100%. Uh, if these patients were doing fine at 50% in texting, uh, I'm not saying we should keep them at 50%, and we should obviously have uh, markers of end organ failure and lack of oxygenation and watch elevations in lactate um, in proportion to whatever pressors they're on as well. Uh, but, you know, if I have somebody that's 80, 85%, I'm going to be happy, and I understand that it's probably due to an increased shunt uh, VQ mismatch, and I may hit a point to where increasing my PEEP is not recruiting more lung, and it's just injuring them more. So don't be afraid to have somebody at 85%. Uh, one of my buddies, Vahe Ender, always says nobody died from a B. So if you can keep them around the 85, uh, high 80s, somewhere mid 80s, I, I think you'd be doing well. Okay, Harris, so uh, anything to that? Go ahead, Eric. Um, I, I, th I think just in general, right, when you look at the difference between an SpO2 and a PaO2 and that correlation, going from 94% SpO2 to 100% and then looking at the correlation of uh, rise in PaO2 uh, is, is minuscule. Uh, and that's why we always try to titrate to a 94% SpO2. We really don't need anything higher than that. I think, I think in general that's a pretty safe uh, type of thought process. Uh, and, you know, I think you're just not getting the, the therapeutic benefit. Are you, are you leading to lung damage by having that high SpO2? From what I'm reading, um, that's really not that big of a worry. Um, but, again, I just don't think you're, you're not gaining anything by doing that. So uh, Rick is uh, listening in today and is asking, do either of you use imaging ultrasound, chest x-ray, or CT to help predict the amount of shunt versus mismatch? Do you think that air bronchograms may help? Ooh, I like it. I like it, Rick. So I, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm the, uh, the master at chest x-rays or CT, but I do dabble uh, with ultrasound. And actually, my buddy Chip Lang from Total EM just put out a free ultrasound course uh, for lung ultrasound. It's just the lung portion. And yes, absolutely. If you're seeing bronchograms, especially dynamic bronchograms that are moving, uh, that's an indication that this patient does have a lot of extravascular lung water. And yeah, maybe we can predict by how many D lines we see uh, within an intercostal space how much actual pulmonary edema they have. I don't know if predicting that helps change anything for me uh, that I wouldn't see just off of basic ventilator compliance. 
Uh, but it is nice to see, and a lung ultrasound has been fantastic because we have uh, different findings that seem to be a sort of hallmark for COVID-19, like a thickened a pleural lining, uh, the waterfall D line, where it looks like instead of just these little streaks going from the pleural to the base, uh, they're actually widened, and you see this waterfall effect. Um, so, yeah, I do think that there's a role for this. I actually, I have a, um, a Lumify ultrasound that I'm using right now to build out a course, and I was doing lung ultrasounds on myself. I come home from work, and if I had a little bit of a cough or something, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to look to see if my, if my pleural line looks thickened or irregular or if I have this waterfall effect, and I'd be playing around with it because it's, it's, it's true, and you can look at it in Twitter and social media. It's just been fascinating for this because uh, people, uh, I think it was Dr. Chen, I think it was Dr. Chen, uh, he had COVID-19. He was on Twitter posting live updates of his chest lungs or uh, chest ultrasound, and he was showing you what he was finding. And then he healed, he, he's in um, I said remission, but he's healed from the COVID-19. <laughs> That's the way to put it. And uh, and you saw how it would resolve. It was really interesting. But yeah, I definitely think that there's a role for that. We just got to be uh, careful how much we expose extra equipment uh, to find stuff that maybe doesn't really change the way we treat them, if that makes sense. So I wouldn't want to uh, expose more equipment, sending people to a CT if if I didn't need that, if I could just isolate that to maybe a chest x-ray or ultrasound, and that may be the benefit of using ultrasound here. It's small, and it's easy to sterilize and not cross-contaminate. Okay, uh, talking about uh, intubation a little bit, I've heard a lot of people discussing whether or not it is a good idea to intubate COVID patients. Is it possible that intubation is actually making them worse, and why might that be? I say 100%. Um, what do you say, Eric? You know, I, I, man, I don't, I, it's hard for me to say either way. I, I think we're so early on. I think that, yeah, there's probably patients that are being intubated way too early. And I think that's what, um, what we are starting to see that, that there was a, an early push to innovate early and get them managed. And I think they're realizing that that may, may have been the wrong uh, choice. Tyler, what do you think? Yeah, totally. And so like, I, like I said in the in the webinar, like you know, I'm not seeing a ton of these patients. I'm up here in rural Wisconsin. We haven't. I don't think we've even seen our peak, but who knows? Uh, but when I listen to smart people that are working in these heavily congested areas, and they're saying these patients are doing great with high flow cannulas or CPAP, and not intubating them. As soon as we intubate them, we start seeing signs of end organ failure. We start seeing increased uh, hypercoagulopathies. Uh, then I have to say there's something to this. And the initial reports coming from Italy were uh, to intubate early and try to you know, minimize exposure. Uh, but we got to be careful with that because if somebody's sitting there talking to us and we're just intubating them um, and they completely understand, hey, we're going to be intubating you because your pulse ox is low, I don't think that's the right thing to do. We can't intubate people because of hypoxemia. I shouldn't say we can't, but we have to be very cautious about doing that. Um, but if you see things like their end tidal CO2 is uh, elevating, uh, they're becoming, they have this increased respiratory acidosis, uh, their mental status is starting to deteriorate. All of those things right there are going to uh, start to indicate that maybe we do need to take this patient's airway. But uh, we should, in my opinion, and you know, this obviously is changing rapidly and every day, uh, but from what I've seen from people that are a lot smarter than I am, 
um, we shouldn't be intubating purely off of hypoxemia. We should be very careful about that. So uh, you went into this a little bit during the presentation, but uh, one of our attendees is asking, um, what are some of the reasons why we shouldn't be using one ventilator for multiple patients? Uh, do you know of any hospitals in the U.S. that have tried this due to vent shortage? Um, I, I don't know of any hospitals that have done that. doesn't mean that that hasn't happened. I, I did field a lot of emails and text messages. I had pictures sent to me with drawings, um, and, and I really didn't know how to respond. Uh, I, I think uh, right after that, the Society of Critical Care Medicine put out a position statement, as did other um, physician-led groups and associations, that that was not uh, recommended. And I think that, you know, you have you have... I think that's just a very complex type of a situation. I think that, you know, you, you have so many dynamics that are in play. You have two patients that have two separate uh, lung compliance. Um, you know, there's just so many things that, that go into that, and, and that's why we really didn't spend a lot of time in the webinar on that because, you know, I think we both agreed that that's not the right thing to do. Yeah, so this is so much fun to think about from just a logistic perspective. Um, I think a lot of the ventilator nerds are like, oh, man, we could 3D print this piece and we could change this. Uh, but <laughs> like they say in the Jurassic Park, you know, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. Or we spent so much time wondering if we uh, or how we could. We didn't think about if we should or something like that. I probably botched that saying. That. But um, we could plan this out logistically, but does it make sense from a risk stratification standpoint? And um, I think it was Ruben Strayer who was on MCRIT. And they were talking about this. And he said, you know, if, if we take this patient, we put him on the ventilator, you know, how much does this decrease their mortality? Or we could even say increase their mortality. And then we look at that number and we compare it to, all right, well, let's say I don't put somebody on the ventilator. Is the risk benefit there uh, to ventilate two patients as opposed to just one patient? And honestly, uh, just my opinion is it's not. I mean, we have to dial in these patients uh, to we, well, I should say we have to dial in the ventilator specifically to these patients. And when you're ventilating two patients with one ventilator, um, what happens is you have to completely remove the patient uh, in their interaction. You turn these, you turn them into test lungs essentially, and so you have just two sets of lungs that aren't moving. And then you have to match the settings so that the way they're both breathing at the same rate. Um, maybe you can customize PEEP on some setups. Otherwise, you can't. And so I just don't think that that makes a lot of sense to uh, remove that patient's interaction with the ventilator, especially in this situation right now, because uh, you do have these L types and these H types. And uh, let's say you do have an L type mixed with an H type on the same vent, or somebody's not aware enough to know how to uh, qualify these and delineate them, uh, you're going to get into an issue. So uh, I could say from it's safe to say from a ventilator, from a transport setting, a retrieval setting which Eric and I are in, um, that it doesn't make sense to try to. Uh, for one, we're not going to transport two of these patients on a vent. Um, so, yes, we would just use one ventilator. I'd say we should spend our time looking at other things like uh, non-invasive means, uh, looking at how we're setting up our filters if we are going to use uh, CPAP or, uh, you know, if you're using the flow safe and it's not a closed system, you know, what type of filter are you going to put on there? But uh, we definitely should see a big shift in not intubating. Uh, that alone will preserve how many ventilators we have. And then the other thing is just looking at how we can do this safe 
and not contaminate the crew. One of the things that came up early was, you know, the end tidal CO2. You know, is that kind of sample and spit out of the zole? And as talking about where you're putting the um, uh, the, the filter in regard to the end tidal CO2, so many cool logistical things that, uh, that have come out of this unfortunate situation. But yeah, I, for I, I think just to wrap it up and as a summary, no, don't do that. And don't waste time thinking about it. Uh, and then on the topic of uh, ventilators and transport, Becky is listening in uh, and asks, would you recommend a parapack vent with a COVID patient for, gra uh, for ground transport? Um, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I think that's hard. I mean, I think the parapack vent is a very basic vent. Uh, it's not that it's bad. I think that you have to really, you're going to be on, uh, essentially a CMV mode. So I think you have to have a really good sedation and, uh, long acting paralytic in play. I think that, so that protocol has to be in play, um, you know, you have the ability to turn up your, you know, your rate and your tidal volume. Um, I, I'm trying to remember if you can add PEEP with that vent. Um, again, I, I have not used that vent in a long time. Do you know, Tyler, if you can add PEEP to that vent? I mean, you're going to need, you're going to need some PEEP. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think that, that if that's all you had, um, obviously you could try it. Um, optional PEEP, I see. Optional PEEP, yeah. So I think you would have you to have. It <laughs> yeah, I have it. I have it in front of me now. Yeah. So it says optional peep, um, and so that, that's what I would say is that you got to make sure it's not just always the vent. You got to make sure because you're going to be in a completely controlled mandatory ventilation. Uh, yeah. If if this patient is already on a vent and they're in pressure control ventilation, like a lot of these patients, if they're very severe, may be, uh, and you need to use this vent, you're not going to have that ability. So you're going to have to put them back on volume, and that might not be beneficial. So there's a lot of lot of things to think about um, regarding that question. Okay, so uh, Scott's listening in. Can you please further uh, describe uh, and define plateau versus peak pressure? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to do that, Eric? Yeah, that's no problem. So uh, these are the two pressures that you see um, on your ventilator, you know, primarily. You're always going to see on every ventilator a peak pressure. That's your peak inspiratory pressure. That pressure is the pressure at the peak of inspiration. Uh, we look at a PIP in two ways. You look at that as far as in a volume breath that's going to be measured uh, at, the, at that peak uh, and delivered to you. It's given to you every single second. So that is essentially a, a reflection on resistance flow, um, you know, factors that affect that if the patient uh, coughs, if, the, if you need to suction your patient, if you have a kinked ET tube, if you have a, a narrow diameter airway, you know, anything like that is going to change that peak inspiratory pressure. A plateau pressure is a pressure that is actually measured when the flow is brought to zero. And you do that on a ventilator that is, number one, in a volume breath. So not all ventilators are going to give you a true plateau pressure. Um, so you have to have a ventilator that will allow you to do an inspiratory hold. That brings that flow to zero, and it's telling you what the alveolar pressure is. Uh, a lot of literature will tell you, and, and the way I was
is that if you have a plateau pressure, uh, obviously you check that in a volume breath. That is really the most important pressure on the ventilator. It tells you the pressures uh, in the, that lung, and, and you want to keep that number below 30. Um, one of the easiest ways to increase a plateau pressure above 30, or, or if you have a pressure above 30, is to always look at your tidal volume. Tidal volume that are high, too high, can definitely cause a higher plateau pressure. Um, but a plateau pressure is definitely a number you want to look at uh, consistently and, and be aware of on your patient. Now, the Hamilton T1, the ventilator that Tyler uses, is a pressure ventilator. It does not have a true volume mode. So, for example, that ventilator does not have a, a way of doing an inspiratory hold, and, and Tyler can talk about that more if he wants, but you have to have a ventilator that, that gives you the ability to do a inspiratory hold, bring that flow to zero to measure that. Yeah, that, and Scott, that's a great question. When I'm explaining this, we do a ventilator workshop. Um, I, t I take a straw, and I say, how can I make the pressure on this side of the straw the same as the pressure on the opposite end? And they're like, well, isn't it right now? And I'm like, yeah, you're exactly right. Right now it is because there's no flow going through it. But if I start blowing in one end of the straw, I'm blowing a certain amount of volume into a very narrow conduit. And so what happens, it's like a bunch of people trying to run out of a movie theater at the same time, you're gonna get a bottleneck. And so that's the peak airway pressure. Uh, but that, we can't say that just because I'm blowing in one end of the straw and the pressure's 30, that that's what's coming out the other end because we're going to get a little bit of a pressure drop. And that pressure on the other end is the alveolar, what the alveoli are seeing. So like Eric said, that has to be during a period of no flow. And this is important in the volume mode because you have a consistent flow that is delivering a certain volume. Whereas in a pressure mode, I'm saying I want you to give 20 centimeters of water pressure. And so the flow ramps up initially and it allows me to get to 20 centimeters of water pressure, but it doesn't want to overflow. So what it does is as soon as I start approaching 20, it starts to dial down that flow. And so I don't go over 20. So I could say that my peak airway pressure is probably pretty close to my alveolar pressure in a pressure mode because it's not a consistent blowing through that straw. All right, we have a question from Aaron. What's happening when the perfusion ventilation loop looks like a figure eight? I love this question, man. This is great because it tells me that you're looking at PV loops. So uh, if you move to the right on the pressure volume loop, if you look at the x-axis, you're looking at pressure. And so when we're giving a positive pressure breath, we're, we're adding pressure in. It's, imagine like instead of withdrawing in a syringe and pulling air into it, you're actually uh, blowing air into the syringe. And so we normally get this uh, counterclockwise movement because we're adding air. Well, if you go the other way and you were to look at a spontaneously breathing patient's PV loop, it would actually go clockwise because we're creating negative pressure. So if you see a negative pressure breath, or if the patient's trying to trigger a breath on their PV loop, it's gonna start off going clockwise, but then the ventilator kicks in and says, all right, I'm gonna give you that pressure support. And then you switch to, uh, from a negative pressure to a positive pressure breath. And so you get a figure eight form on there, and that's showing you that the patient is trying to trigger a breath. So you can do a couple things. You can sedate them, 
um, more, or you can uh, increase the trigger. It just depends on how much they're actually pooling out. And uh, you look at this with something called the mouth occlusion pressure at 0.1 seconds. And what that is, is it just looks at how much pressure they're pooling before the ventilator decides to give them a breath. All right. Uh I know you guys can also see the questions as they're coming in. I think it might be most helpful if you uh, kind of summarize this next one. It looks like a very specific uh, patient case, a lot of science. You don't want to read that, John? Clinical value. <laughs> I think, I think uh, better use of our time is to have you, have you guys kind of look that over and summarize if we can uh, derive any lessons from it. Yeah, this is interesting. So I, so uh, it was nice. Hillary's been putting these in, or somebody's been putting these in, so we're able to look at these beforehand. And it, this is a common situation where uh, you're switching somebody from a facility vent to your vent, and it's like this critical time period, especially in a COVID situation. Uh, but even if it's not, um, and you're hoping that, like, all right, I'm going to switch them from this vent to my vent. I'm going to copy the settings. Everything should be the same, but sometimes it's not. And so the first thing I look at is my VTEs uh, because my initial settings may be the same, but are my alarm limits limiting my pressure? And what I mean by that is if I have my Hamilton T1 set to an alarm, a high pressure alarm of 40, it's going to cancel my breath out at 30. And so if I switch to somebody who has maybe had higher pressures to my vent, I'm going to notice a decrease in tidal volume, and my VTEs are going to drop. So keep an eye on your alarm limits and know that that's maybe something that's not an obvious parameter, but it does play into how the ventilator synchronizes with the patient. And then in this situation, uh, Eric and I were discussing this patient is on a high amount of PEEP. So you got a PEEP of 18. And so you got to be careful when you, when you switch somebody over from one vent to another, uh, you're taking the ventilator circuit off of the endotracheal tube. And during that time frame, you have, a, you have an atmospheric pressure of zero, uh, but the alveoli are holding 18 centimeters of water pressure. So uh, just basic physics will tell you that you're going to start trying to leak out that positive pressure uh, to equalize between the alveoli and the uh, environment. And so what happens is, is you can de-recruit some of those alveoli. Now, you got a PEEP of 5 to 10, probably not a big deal, but you get a PEEP of 18. Uh, what you have to do is once the patient takes that breath, you got to clamp the ET tube, and then you switch over the ventilators, and then you unclamp that. And then what that should do is uh, hopefully maintain some of that, that PEEP so you don't de-recruit all of those alveoli. So that's, that's like the obvious low-hanging fruit answer to this, uh, but there are other variables. Eric, you want to add anything? No, I think you hit it perfectly. I think, like you said, we, we see this all the time, and we don't always only see this with event to event. We see this with a BVM to event. Uh, and I think what I want to highlight there, and that is probably the most common, is you walk into an ED and you have this exact same patient, uh, and you you have the same phenomenon. Oftentimes, we got to remember, and Tyler did this study where he simulated this with a steel lung when he was at, at Lifestar, where he brought in all his providers and they actually tested what were the volumes in a standard adult BVM. And whether you were male or female, you know, using two hands, every single provider was well over 1,000 mils. So if you go from 1,000 mil plus volume on a BVM, right, adult BVM, 
and then you lower that to a standard six to eight mil per kilo tidal volume, even if it's 550 mils, you've dropped a volume by half. So just that alone, we, I have seen many times, uh, I've seen this in the air medical side for, with flight crews, having the same exact phenomenon where somebody has, you know, maybe either, maybe they're larger, maybe they need a bigger volume, and that transition does not go very well. But I, I agree with Tyler that it, this is probably a problem with, with, you know, the clamping of the ET tube. I think the alarm parameters are a huge thing. You have to know your ventilator. The Revell ventilator, for example, it, it does not uh, drop by 10 like the Hamilton. It only drops by 5, but that's also a very common problem. If you don't know that, your, your breath terminates uh, lower than, than what is needed, and you're not getting the exhale tidal volume or the, the volume that the patient is desiring. Thanks, Eric. You know what I liked uh, about this, Eric? Oh, go ahead, Tom. Oh, what was that? No, I was just going to say the the amount of detail that I don't know who this provider was who put this in there. I don't see a name, but uh, the amount of detail shows that they've reflected on this call a lot, and that they are yeah. like really doing some introspection and thinking about what caused it, and like the art of reflection and being able to think back on these assignments and then ask for opinion is is I mean it's ridiculously valuable. This is what's going to make somebody a good provider. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, having this type of information, I love getting, and I know Eric does too, like getting these emails sent to us, asking us these specific questions, because uh, sometimes it's a very obvious answer to us, um, and then we can give you that advice, and then sometimes it's it's not, and you say, yeah, we did clamp the tube, and then we're able to learn off of each other. So really crowdsourcing the ability to troubleshoot really helps everybody in the end, and that's what social media has really helped out with. Sorry, John. You go to the next one. No, no, no not a problem. Let's uh, let's move on to one from Donald here. Any issues with uh, denitrogenation with these high FiO2 and lower PEEP uh, instances? I, um, I I I think that that's a great question because you're right. I mean, 79% of your nitrate, your your, uh, your alveoli, or I should say, of the 79% is of the air we breathe is nitrogen, and that makes up a huge portion of uh, just what keeps those alveoli open. So if we denitrogenate because we got 100% FiO2, we just need to make sure we are adding some PEEP. Um, but you know, if you're adding five to 10 of PEEP, you shouldn't have any issue with atelectasis, uh, like an absorbative atelectasis from high FiO2. Yeah, I agree, yeah. So uh, Justin wants to know, can you review some good ways to tell if a filter has become obstructed um, from uh, fluid saturation or phlegm, et cetera. I think uh, it's funny. This one feeds off of that, that you know, the, the figure eight pressure volume loop, uh, because if you notice your patient's becoming uncomfortable and they're working harder to trigger a breath, uh, that should make you think that there could be something wrong with that. If you're seeing higher peak airway pressures, uh, all of these things would lead me down thinking that maybe the, uh, the filter has an obstruction into it. Eric? No, I, th I think you hit it perfectly. I, I haven't had this problem. I mean, I'm just trying to process it myself. I mean, I think, I think I would probably try to be as simple as I could, and I'd switch out the filter and see if things improved. Um, um, I don't really have much else. Yeah, I would say if you're doing that, especially on a COVID patient, though, it should be like an ECMO swap where you clamp off both sides 
Um, sure. You put the vent in standby, obviously, beforehand, so you don't risk any aerosolization, um, and be very deliberate about how you do it. And it would have to be one heck of an obstruction for me to want to start messing with that filter in the middle of a helicopter transport or ambulance. Right. Okay, moving on here. Uh, great stuff with the overpeep issue, but could another potential reason for this be uh, increasing right ventricular afterload and worsened function with potential increase in shunting? In those cases, inhaled nitric oxide or flow land can be very helpful, and we've seen a lot of response to these things in COVID patients. Any thoughts on that? That's a Leon. Uh, so I'm going to take this one. Yeah, and, and Leon and I are having a texting conversation based off of this because I just <laughs> okay. I saw it. And he, he he sent me a message, but uh, so I'll be honest. Like when I first saw this, I was thinking, all right, if we're giving something that's going to dilate pulmonary vasculature, you know, isn't that going to reverse any hypoxic vasoconstriction that could actually be helping us? Uh, because we want portions of the lung that aren't getting ventilated, we want those capillaries to clamp down because then we're not sending blood to areas that aren't ventilated. And so uh, I sent him a message and I was like, what do you think about that? And he's like, yeah, you know, like I could see where you're coming from, if, especially if you were giving like a uh, Flolin or Epipresinol uh, IV, you could get like a systemic effect. Then we kind of see that already with uh, like, if somebody's getting the cardipine, it can actually make the VQ mismatch worse. Um, but if you're giving something like Flolin and you're, you're uh, you're giving it directly into the lungs through a nebulizer or with an atomizer, um, what can happen is, or what will happen is you only get that medication to the alveoli that are being ventilated. And so you would want to increase the perfusion to that area. So it's a really interesting question, um, or not so much a question, but more so just a, a thought process. Because as you increase PEEP, you increase the pulmonary artery pressure. And that has that can have deleterious effects on patients and i've recently had a patient to where uh, they had a peep of 20 and just because they had a peep of 20 i started noticing that their, i mean their pulse ox was like 65 percent and so my first thought was maybe they have like a, a patent frame and oval and or ovale and uh, they're actually like increasing the pressures of the right heart which is shuttling blood from the right side to the left side not getting it oxygenated which would be like the most purest form of a divorce between your uh, your FiO2 and your CO2 clearance, your, I should say your oxygenation and your CO2 clearance. Um, so you do have to be careful because as you increase PEEP, you're increasing the right ventricular afterload, and that can have really bad effects too. I mean, that's what that's kind of like the uh, the process behind a pulmonary embolism and why you see the deing of the septum and the McConnell sign on the ultrasound is because you increase that right ventricular pressure and the right ventricle is used to low pressure. It's not used to high pressures. And so uh, you start running into a lot of problems. So I think that this makes sense. Um, and especially, I mean, Leon's a, an intensivist down in Chicago. So dude's got a lot more experience than I do with this. So I got to take his word on it, that this, this seems to be a good idea. Uh, we definitely know it's a good idea um, in patients with like pulmonary embolism. And a lot of this increased right ventricular pressures not due to the actual obstruction, but kind of the uh, the cytokine storm and the inflammatory mediators that take place. So I think this is great. Maybe this is something that we'll start to see latch on. 
Austin is listening in. So could we say that if the static compliance is above 50, we should use PEEP in moderation and try not to go above 10C. But once compliance goes down, we should switch to the ARDSnet strategy. Yeah, I think that that is that is that that thought process is really the way I was taught to do recruitment maneuvers uh, is to watch, um, you know, increase my PEEP check a plateau pressure, um, evaluate the static compliance, um, you know, let my PEEP, you know, kind of take effect for a couple of minutes, increase it again, uh, do another plateau pressure check, identify, did that static compliance continue to improve? Did it go up or did it go back down? Um, and I was taught to continue to increase my PEEP until my static compliance goes the opposite direction. Uh, I would then, if that happens, then turn it back down. So that's the way I would handle that situation. Tyler, what do you think? I think that the uh, the baby's crying right now, man. So I had to run <laughs> over and, and grab it. So, I, dude, I, I 100% agree with anything that Eric Bauer says. So I think that's safe in saying I I agree with that, man. Um, I, I have to cut out, guys. I apologize. I got to go help Havan out with the baby. But thanks so much for allowing me the opportunity to pop on and answer some of these questions. If you guys have any other questions, feel free to email me. Uh, just tylerchristofoli at gmail.com. Tyler, thanks awesome. so much thanks, for, for hanging around for the Q&A. Congratulations. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Uh, have a great day. You too. Eric, you want to hang on? We have a, yeah. a few yep. more to handle here. I will, I will okay, do my best. Let's talk about ground glass appearance. It's something that we uh, hear quite a bit on uh, yeah. in relation to chest X-ray. So, what does what does ground glass appearance exactly mean? And are there other conditions in which we might see this uh, this finding? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the term ground glass appearance really comes uh, from the thought process, and I love uh, using this analogy. If you look at a chest X-ray and you imagine the densest areas are going to show white. Air shows black. And imagine a normal chest X-ray, you should have primarily, you know, black lung fields. And then in, entwined in those black lung fields, you should see those little airways, those little vascular markings. And imagine in a patient that is in ARDS, or uh, you're going to see this with any fluid accumulation. You are going to see... Um, that ground glass appearance. And the way that would appear, imagine taking a cotton ball, dabbing it in white paint and starting to blotch and dab that chest x-ray. That's essentially the way I was taught and the way I think of it is that is just a fluid accumulation globally and that's the term used. And so you see that in, you'll see that in pulmonary edema, you'll see that in ARDS, you have to look at specifically the patient, identify acute versus chronic onset, and go through the different parameters in uh, that we laid out within the lecture to identify is this, you know, a, a true ARDS patient, is this patient a pulmonary edema patient. But that ground glass appearance is that thought process. The chest x-ray we put up in the lecture, I believe it was, it was uh, slide number, uh, I think slide 28, um, there was ground glass, glass appearance. That wasn't, you know, very severe. Um, the other term that I'd like to kind of hit on here is the difference between an opacity versus an infiltrate. 
we use the term opacity um, or bilateral opacities, and you'll see that in pneumonia where you'll have an area, and if you guys still have that lecture up, you'll, you, you'll see that you have these opacities, these areas that almost look like that you've erased part of that chest X-ray, you know, and you have this white faint area. What we often misuse is the term infiltrate. Infiltrate really is used very loosely, and an infiltrate basically alludes to that there's an infectious process. Um, and you can't truly identify if there's an infectious process based on the chest X-ray. You have to look at the overall big picture and diag diagnosis to really use that term. So hopefully that answers that question. All right, sounds good. We have uh, time for about three more questions here. Let's talk about dialysis patients. Uh, is the literature showing dialysis patients as mostly H-type? Uh, in my practice, we are seeing stage four and stage renal disease patients with sudden respiratory failure and cardiac arrest, even in young people. Any, uh, any thoughts there? You know, I'm going to be honest with you that I have not dealt with any dialysis patients, and I really could not answer that question uh, with any confidence. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to bow out on that one. I, I honestly wouldn't even know, um, and that's not something that I've, I've looked into. Of course. Uh, let's uh, hear from Robert here. What are your thoughts on steroid use for COVID patients? Uh, would that uh, combat the cytokine storm and or the inflammatory response? You know, that's interesting. I think the initial teachings that I, that I listened to, um, you know, listening to Scott Weingard and some of the, the critical care guys in New York, you know, the initial stuff, they were saying that steroid use would probably not be beneficial, but I just heard a teaching from him the other day where you know, maybe later in the disease process, you know, when things got bad, you know, it, it may not be a bad idea to try it. Um, but I don't know if there's any literature that, again, I think this is such a new disease. I think that, that they're really just trying different things and, and hoping one works uh, and going off of what we know in other disease processes. Here is a great one to wrap up with today. Uh, let's talk about patients that recover. What are some after effects of being on a ventilator? What are the, uh, some of the things we should be worried about in patients who recover? Uh, things like lung damage, airway damage, uh, mental health, et cetera. Yeah, I think this is just a normal question. I think we see this in the ICU patients. Um, there is a, a, a big, big emphasis right now, and it has been for quite a few years, on the whole delirium uh, aspect of trying to do sedation vacations and try, trying to keep patients off of benzodiazepines, using more high-dose fentanyl drips, using more ketamine, uh, because, you know, you think about just, there, there's a lot of literature out there that ICU patients that recover, they end up at home, they actually have disabilities. They have to be taken care of for long periods, some of them for the rest of their life. They have mental uh, health issues. You know, you think about, um, I've, I've been able to talk to a lot of providers, paramedics and nurses, that for whatever reason ended up on a ventilator where they uh, still remember not being sedated well enough, being on assist control, for example, and knowing and being aware and feeling like they were suffocating and not being able to take a breath. So there are a lot of different parts of, of, of that that definitely play into the mental health. 
I think the delirium aspect, not knowing night and day, um, it, it really does, I think, affect the patient long term. As far as lung damage goes, you know, I don't, I always try to stay away from things I'm not real strong in. I, I don't have the numbers, but I think that what we are seeing with COVID-19 patients is that they're, they're, they're having long-term lung problems. They're not just recovering and going back to normal. They're having respiratory problems. They're having difficulty uh, with just normal breathing for quite a long time after the disease process. I think airway damage is something that is just synonymous with long-term intubation. That's why you see a lot of long-term intubated patients transition to a trach uh, because of that. All right. Thanks uh, so much to Eric Bauer, and also our thanks and congratulations to new father Tyler Christofuli, who was joining us today. Uh, can't thank both of you enough for putting together uh, this webinar, staying over time to answer questions from attendees and uh, sharing your knowledge today. One more time, we would like to thank Zoll for sponsoring this webinar, bringing the presentation to you. Uh, Eric, any uh, closing comments before we sign off for today? No, I think, uh, we, you know, we really, Tyler and I really appreciate uh, what everybody does out there. Continue to stay safe. Uh, as Tyler said, if you guys have any questions, uh, feel free to email either of us. My email is eric, E-R-I-C, dot Bauer at flightbridge ed.com and uh, we definitely respond to emails on a daily basis and we will answer anything and help you out any way we can. Terrific. Thanks so much, Eric. One final note for our audience as we wrap up today. We have recorded this webinar. It will be archived and available shortly on our webinars page. You can find that at emsworld.com slash webinars. Um, please also visit that page. Uh, we're always scheduling and, and uh, launching new webinars as, as they are announced. Our next presentation is going to be next Tuesday, April 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern. We will be joined by Heather Davis, Michael Caduce, and Kathleen O'Connor of UCLA. They're going to be speaking on how to maintain educational continuity during the COVID-19 pandemic. So please join us next Tuesday. Uh, if you're not on our email list um, and you're not receiving updates on these webinars, you can go to emsworld.com and uh, click subscribe in the top bar. You can get on our email list to receive our e-newsletters uh, as, as well as our uh, email updates for upcoming webinars. So again, thanks to all of our listeners for joining us today and for what you're doing every day. Please stay safe, have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the next webinar. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020 at EMS World Expo.